its Innovation Station initiative, the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues at the U.S. Department of State is amplifying women and girls developing solutions to global challenges and helping them connect with new communities that could benefit from their work. Today, you'll meet a few of those innovators as they explain their game-changing, translatable initiatives in their own words. Welcome to SGWE's Innovation Station. Known for its iconic scenes in fashion, including 7th Avenue and New York Fashion Week, the Big Apple is home to some of the world's most popular fashion labels, renowned design schools, and industry events that showcase forward-thinking designs. The Garment District of Manhattan, named for its history of textile production, is just one small area contributing to an industry which has unequivocally shaped the city's financial and cultural identity. However, with this legacy comes the environmental challenges of fast fashion, material sourcing, and labor. The fashion industry is responsible for approximately 2.1 billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions annually, accounting for 4% of global emissions. The impacts of the fashion industry on climate change are associated with overproduction, overconsumption, and a business model historically linked to exploitation and waste. Workers in the sector may suffer from poor wages and working conditions. Most of these workers are women, and the industry primarily markets toward women consumers, yet most major brands are led by men. While the clothing industry is universally relevant, Paris, Milan, London, and of course New York are considered the big four fashion capitals of the world, closely linking these cities with the industry's persistent environmental and social challenges, while simultaneously providing some of the most promising opportunities for improved sustainability. Various other domestic and international communities also exert major influence on fashion and its practices, including Los Angeles, Miami, Madrid, Tokyo, and more. During this conversation, our guests will discuss their community-driven strategies for improving the sustainability of fashion. Their tactics are quite complementary, addressing both pre- and post-consumer waste streams within the industry. Please join me in welcoming our panelists, Camille Tegel, co-founder and creative director of Fab Scrap, and Liz Ricketts, co-founder and director of the Orr Foundation. Welcome, Camille, and thank you so much for joining us today. Would you get us started, perhaps, with a brief introduction to FabScrap? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Aubrey. For those of you who are unfamiliar or hearing about FabScrap for the first time, um, FabScrap is a um, pre-consumer-focused textile recycling nonprofit located in New York um, with a location also in Philadelphia. Um, basically, if you think of how cardboard or plastic is um, carted away and, and recycled um, for businesses, we're a very similar type of service, but we focus on textiles specifically. Um, and we keep those textiles out of landfill by either downcycling it into shoddy, which becomes various forms of insulation, or redistributing any fabric that can have a continued life. Um, like it's either in good enough condition for reuse, um, larger pieces, that sort of thing. Thank you so much, Camille. And Liz, we are so grateful to have you with us today as well. Would you tell us a bit about the Orr Foundation? Yes. Hi, Aubrey. Thanks so much for having me, and thanks to Georgie for that moving introduction. Uh, so yes, again, my name is Liz Ricketts. I'm the co-founder and director of the Orr Foundation. We are a Ghana and USA-based not-for-profit that works at the intersection of environmental justice, education, and fashion development. 
And we do have programs in the United States, but today we'll be mostly talking about our work with Contamanto Market in Accra. And that's probably unfamiliar to everyone here. So just to give a little context, Contamanto Market is the largest secondhand clothing market in the world. Ghana is the largest importer of secondhand clothing in the world, and the United States is the largest exporter of secondhand goods. And you might not know this, but if you live in the global north and you donate your clothes or you put it in a recycling bin, um, chances are it enters this global secondhand trade and ends up in a place like Contamanto. Now, Contamanto sees 15 million garments a week, and what we have found is that about 40% of that leaves as waste. And because Ghana has no landfills, it has no incinerators to hide that in, it becomes visible, it, it hits the ground, it enters the ocean, it is millions of garments every week are washing up on um, the coastline of Accra, and much of this clothing is burnt um, out in the open, becoming air pollution. So unlike here in the Global North, where we can kind of make it out of sight, out of mind, in Ghana, the waste crisis is very much felt and it's very much seen. But importantly, even though Contamanto makes this visible, Contamanto itself is very much a model of sustainability. It's the largest reuse and upcycling economy in the world. Thousands of people are working there every day to repair and upcycle things that come from the global north as waste. And I'm talking so much about Contamanto because A, um, all of this information comes from our firsthand research with the community, but B, because they're the real solution providers here. And for us, our work as an organization is all about advancing the good work that's already underway while also trying to facilitate the sort of last ingredient of a circular economy, um, additional infrastructure for recycling and decomposition. So thank you so much for having me. Fantastic. Thank you, Liz. I'm excited to jump into more detail regarding both organizations here. And Camille, I'm going to start with you. FabScrap's model differs from other nonprofits and thrift stores that accept secondhand clothing. Why has FabScrap chosen to work with companies on reducing their waste before the point of sale? Really a great question. And I think this all comes back to the differences between textile waste. So I think the type of textile waste that people are most familiar with um, because we all wear clothing is post-consumer, which is basically any clothing that has been worn, loved, um, used in some way, and comes from an individual or a household. Um, what we focus on is pre-consumer, which is the commercial level waste. And um, to describe this a little further, um, in the process of creating um, anything, um, but specifically in this case, clothing, um, there's so much waste that happens along that process um, that actually accumulates before the garment is even made. So there's an estimate that for every one pound of um, post-consumer waste that is thrown, 60 pounds have accumulated upstream to even get to that one pound, um, 60 pounds of waste. So when you think about that, that's, that's a huge difference um, in terms of volume. And uh, that's, I think, why we've chosen to really focus on commercial waste is because the volumes that are unseen that are happening um, behind the scenes because of really antiquated processes in the fashion industry, all of that um, the average person wouldn't really know about and is very much unseen. And so we are actually one of the only organizations um, known to, to be focusing on this issue. Um, and we're, we're lucky to have quite a few other organizations to focus on post-consumer, 
and all the work, like, for example, that Liz is doing. Um, but we find ourselves carrying that burden of um, commercial waste. And so we think it's extra important that we focus on that. Um, another huge part for us is that we, we definitely feel that um, companies who are contributing to this waste, um, we really feel like it's important for them to have some skin in the game and for them to also um, fund these solutions to taking care of the waste that they are creating um, that is not necessarily a burden on consumers. Um, so this is really a way for us to kind of have um, brands take accountability of their waste um, and also do a little bit better in their processes. And by signing up with us, um, we do give a report um, each year of their data and how much um, you know, in terms of recycling with fab scrap, what that means in terms of CO2 offset and trees planted and um, having them understand kind of the breakdown of what their impact is. Um, so there's a lot more than just signing up for a service. There's um, also all the data and the learning and education that comes with it. And our hope is that that also encourages other discussions of how to rework their systems as well. Fantastic. I, you said it's you're shining a light on something that not many people probably know about it. I feel like I've already learned something, so we're off to a good start here. Uh, Liz, Liz, I'm going to turn back to you. My understanding is that the Orr Foundation's mission is to catalyze a justice-led circular economy. Can you explain what this concept means to you and how it relates to both climate change and women's rights? Yeah, very good question. Uh, so, quite simply, it means prioritizing the prosperity of the people who have unjustly carried the burden of fashion's waste crisis for a long time. And the reason that that's important is because when fast fashion brands talk about circularity, they often kind of frame it as if this, as if this waste crisis exists only because we don't have recycling technology. And yes, um, <laughs> we do need innovation in recycling. But the root of fashion's waste crisis is very much exploitation, not a lack of technology. The fast fashion model of overproduction and excess is only profitable because garment workers are not paid a living wage. And I think to make that tangible to people, there's a really good example where in 2018, when H&M had $4.3 billion worth of unsold inventory, and still turned a profit um, simply because the cost of producing those garments the wages paid to make them is so small that it's not felt as a loss, right? And I think that living in a world where $4.3 billion of unsold clothes, um, how, I don't know how that makes good business sense. So that's why, unfortunately, we need to emphasize that we want to see a circular economy that's not only about material flows, um, keeping clothing out of landfill, but that also addresses this rampant exploitation, pays garment workers a living wage, and generates safe and dignified employment for the people who are already working in the circular economy. And that's, of course, where we come in. And tangibly, um, for us, that includes, you know, the, the female retailers that are going into debt, managing this waste from the global north. Many of them are single mothers who entered this trade in hopes of supporting their children's education. But, you know, thanks to fast fashion, they're not only struggling to put food on the table, um, but they can't pay school fees. And they're also at work every day, six days a week from 3 a.m. to 7 p.m. So they're not really able to support, you know, their children's development. And then we also work very closely with a group of women called Kayaye, uh, which is a term that means um, female headquarter. 
in Kaiye, um, some as young as six years old. Many of them are climate migrants um, who, like Georgie, um, grew up, you know, carrying water on their heads for miles and miles in northern Ghana. They come to Accra looking for a better life, but they end up carrying these bales of secondhand clothing throughout the market. And these bales weigh 55 um, kg or more. So it's their entire body weights or heavier. And it's dangerous work. It can be fatal. Uh, sometimes these women die because their necks break under the weight of these bales. Um, and sometimes these bales fall backwards, crushing their children to death because they often have to carry their babies on their back while carrying these bales on their heads. And of course, they're paid very little on top of that 30 cents to 1 USD per trip, often walking 10 miles a day with this weight kind of bearing down on them. And then they go home to, you know, a very small room, a concrete floor next to the dump site where the clothing is burnt. So, to address these issues, uh, we have debt relief programs for retailers. We also buy the waste from them um, and use it in our lab, which I know we're going to talk about in a second. And then for the CAIA, we have a chiropractic research and treatment program looking at the physiological impact of this labor, as well as apprenticeship programs where we provide skills training, uh, financial planning, healthcare, and other kind of wraparound services, like ensuring they're registered as citizens so that they can <laughs> access a lot of uh, services in Ghana. And I think, you know, the last thing about a justice-led circular economy is that for us, a circular economy is circular. <laughs> There's things going around the circle. And so we have to do away with this idea of there being a top or a bottom of the supply chain. There's no room for that in a circular economy. And so a lot of the work that we're doing, um, in addition to our direct uh, community programs, is really trying to build new business models that include profit sharing and other ways of redistributing resources and wealth throughout um, this value chain so that it's more sustainable. Awesome. Yes, and we will get to the lab and hopefully some of the other things that you mentioned in just a few minutes. Camille, I'm going to jump back to you because you've intrigued me. Okay. I know that you work at Fab Scrap with volunteers to sort and process all the fabric that you receive, which I imagine is very diverse in terms of, you know, what it's made of, what is attached to it, you know, what is printed on it, et cetera. Can you, I'm really fascinated by this. Can you explain the sorting process and really the final uses of each waste stream? Yes, absolutely. Um, in the six years that we've been operational or almost six years, um, our team has diverted over 1 million pounds of fabric from landfill. Um, it's the same CO2 reducing benefit as planting 110,000 trees. Um, so that has just been from our two small locations um, and just in the Northeast um, here around the New York City area. Um, we work with about 700 brands now across our two locations in New York and Philadelphia. Um, and we pretty much accept anything that comes from, again, the commercial um, waste stream. And so that would be headers, um, which are often tools. Um, they're, they're swatches that um, mills will kind of share with designers. Um, they're kind of selling tools. Um, so we'll accept headers, um, small cuttings. Sometimes there are um, cuts of fabric sent back and forth for approval, um, lab dips, um, and then again, like yardage and um, even sewing and cutting scrap. Um, so all of those types of um, end bits and kind of like fabric in its uh, raw form before it's been made into anything, those are all the types of fabrics that we accept. 
but that does make it a bit complicated when we receive it because there are so many versions of those fabrics that enter a warehouse. So that's where, um, as you mentioned, our volunteer um, opportunities are super, super important for us. Um, every volunteer has their own sorting table and we ask them to sort by fiber type. Um, and so when we receive the bags into our warehouse, the way that we figure out how to keep it out of landfill is um, first, we kind of separate anything that is very clearly able to be reused. So again, that's like yardage or larger cuttings, um, any sort of embellishments, things that easily can be reworked. Those are pretty easy to take out and um, those get separated into our reuse room or kind of our thrift store model where um, anyone from the public can come and shop and access those materials, uh, which used to be thrown to landfill at thrift store pricing. Um, so once those are kind of separated, then we're down to like the smaller pieces or headers or swatches, um, which are a lot more difficult to reuse. So those we ask to be sorted by fiber type. Um, we downcycle anything that doesn't contain spandex. Um, and that gets shredded into what is called shoddy and then shoddy goes through additional processes to become different types of insulation. So you can have insulation for, um, for our doors, which is like really thick and compact and dense. You can have it for flooring or moving blankets, which are very thin and light. Um, so a lot of different uses, um, a lot of different types of insulation. Um, and the most, but the most important part is that it cannot contain spandex because um, it ruins the shred machine. Um, we also partner with Blue Jeans Go Green, who can take um, denim with spandex, and they also shred it into a similar insulation. Um, we also shred anything that is like a mix of fibers. Um, so if it is not 100% um, of cotton, maybe it's like 50% cotton and then 50% polyester, all of that gets um, shredded into insulation. Um, for specific types of um, fibers like polyester and cotton and wool, um, there's a lot of technology developing for fiber to fiber technology. So we do ask our volunteers to sort for those specific categories as they come across them, um, because we want to be able to have the data and the numbers to know how much volume we receive of those specific fiber types. So that when that technology is ready to accept the volumes, then uh, we kind of know on average, like per week or per month, what we receive. Um, but right now, most of that does get added to shredding and to insulation. Um, but all of these, um, <laughs> all of these techniques are put in place and have um, done this well. But of course, we always come across um, outliers and things that kind of don't fit neatly into those categories. Um, and so I think wherever possible, we always emphasize that extending the life of something is always the much better option than breaking it down um, or recycling it. So whenever possible, we do push for reuse. And um, I think that's probably been some of the more like interesting and really fun creative moments is when we see how our community can respond to that and how creative people can really get by thinking outside the box. That's fantastic. And I think really also leads us well into my next question, which is for Liz. When you talk about use cases, um, Liz, the Orr Foundation's No More Fast Fashion Lab is a community and research center focused on finding new ways to turn clothing waste into usable materials. What have you accomplished in the lab so far and what future directions do you foresee? Thanks, Aubrey. I just want to first plug Camille because we've worked with Fab Scrap a lot at universities and brought her to sort of sell yardage. 
and it's a big deal for students to be able to access um, those materials. So it's incredible work that they're doing at FabScrap. Um, here at our No More Fast Fashion Lab, um, we basically operate in cycles. So every four to six months, we choose a different material type to focus on. And for the last six months, we've been focused on t-shirts because single-use t-shirts are <laughs> some of the biggest um, culprits when it comes to the waste stream. That's you know the shirt you got for running a marathon, from your conference, from your sorority. Um, those things don't really sell well in Ghana because they're so context specific. You know, people, you know, you might care about the event you went to, but someone in Ghana might not know at all <laughs> what it means. So we've chosen that and we began with basically 15 possible sort of materials and products we could make out of it. And then through the R&D process, we narrowed it down to a handful of things that we found to be environmentally sound. Um, that makes sense within the system um, that we're operating in within the context and then that they're also economically viable locally. So that includes manufacturing new yardage uh, for fashion and interiors. We've made fiberboard uh, for applications like tables, bulletin boards, picture frames, mirrors, uh, shelving units. We've built our own shredder. Um, so we have a shredder in our space. And with that, we're able to not only provide material for the fiber board, but then also make cushions using both textile as outside and then also rice sacks. So um, rice is a, a dominant food group in Ghana. So we collect the used rice sacks that would otherwise go to waste and then we stuff them with the material. Uh, and then we also have made lamps and mops. Um, which the mops are my favorite product <laughs> because we use the textile waste for the mop head, but then the attachment for the mop um, also has an interesting story. So we created the mold for it using recycled aluminum that comes from the same, the aluminum came from the dump site where the clothing waste ends up. And then we've injected it with recycled plastic. And that's where a lot of our work is now is working with plastic fibers. Um, so primarily polyester, but also others. And with that, so far, we've developed a lot of different building materials. Uh, we're looking at essentially how can we replace virgin plastic in various household objects that are used daily in Ghana. And we do have a, a video on our YouTube if you want to see it in person, which is much more interesting than listening to, to me describe it. Um, but in terms of, you know, where we're headed with it, essentially, you know, we've proven that it's possible to make these materials and products. And to do so, paying people a living wage, and also we've proven that we can find a local and an international market for them. Um, we're fulfilling a lot of orders right now, so we feel pretty confident in you know the potential. But our next step is really to secure funding for an incubator so that we can support local entrepreneurs kind of taking um, these ideas, both uh, entrepreneurs from the informal and the formal economy, taking them forward um, as formal businesses. And then within the lab, we also have ongoing work around fiber to fiber recycling and decomposition. Um, decomposition, what we're working towards is essentially to take the waste that's in the environment right now and to turn it into um, uh, soil compatible nutrients, which is a tall order, <laughs> but something that we are very much working on. And so we're really trying to work holistically, you know, at a lab scale and then also collaboratively at a larger scale.
Thank you so much. Now, before we move on, um, I have to say we have about 10 minutes left in this conversation. Time flies when you're having fun. So we've officially entered what I like to call our speed round um, because I would like to get several more questions into the mix here. First is a question from the audience that I'm actually going to kind of split up between the two of you. I'm going to ask the first part of the question to you, Camille, which is, you know, based in on your perch and sort of what you said related to, you know, there's a lot of work being done innovative ways to address um, the post-consumer waste side. From your perspective, are there exciting things coming down the pipeline there that make you comfortable, um, I would say, focusing more on, on the pre-consumer uh, side? And then the follow-up will be for Liz, which is what can ordinary citizens do to help address the problem? So I'll start with you, Camille. We definitely have a lot of um, plans and initiatives for trying to combat waste um, at the very beginning rather than after it's already happened. Um, and that's something we've been fundraising for is to kind of um, address waste at, at the header level and at the textile mill level um, because we've done pretty well with connecting with brands and companies. Um, but at that point, it's already um, kind of become a waste issue. Um, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there in terms of how, what other ways can we try to reevaluate the actual supply chain process and where are those other big moments of waste happening where if we were to adjust them slightly, that actually creates a much more long lasting effect and a much more um, like easy to deal with the waste um, type of effect. And so um, that's, I think exciting to <laughs> something that is coming down the pipe and something that Fab Scrap specifically is focusing on. Um, other than that, um, I think with us and the type of work that we're doing, our impact grows when we're in more cities. Um, we've been looking at LA for a very long time and the pandemic kind of threw a wrench into those plans. Um, but I think with the right support and um, with the right people behind us, I think that would be another natural step is just um, more locations and having us, um, yeah, being able to serve more cities. And and Liz, what can ordinary citizens do to help? Yeah, thank you. We always get this question. Um, so, you know, first of all, I think citizens anywhere can advocate for effective policies specifically right now. Uh, there's a need to push for extended producer responsibility policies that would go a long way to funding a transition from linear to circular everywhere in the world. And then on a very personal level, uh, we have to. <laughs> We have to sort of confront the fact that paradoxically, perhaps, you know, fast fashion is built on a scarcity mindset. Their whole business model of overproduction is about convincing you that you can never have enough clothing and that you are never enough. And we have to turn that off. And so we always suggest that people buy nothing new for a year. Not because you buy nothing new for a year means that suddenly the waste crisis won't exist. But it means that you can detox from that mentality. And within that time, you can uh, choose three things from your closet to try to do something new with. Try to, you know, maybe you try to learn to mend your clothes or dye your clothes. But even more importantly, from my perspective, would be trying to find out how how accessible is repair? How accessible is upcycling? Do I have a tailor? Do I have a cobbler within a 10 mile radius of me? If I don't, why? 
is it more expensive for me to repair my jeans than it was for me to buy my jeans? What does that mean about the industry that we have and about the future for a circular economy? Because I think to Camille's point that people are more familiar with post-consumer waste because we all wear clothes. That's true, um, but within the circular economy, there, there actually is no recycling technology anywhere in the world capable of absorbing the amount of clothing that exists. There is no technology <laughs> that can just sort of soak it up. So we have to put a pause, we have to slow down. And that, you know, maybe doesn't sound like fun, but if you choose those three garments and really try to find new ways of having relationships with them, it can actually be um, very joyful. And I want to actually jump right back to you, Liz, with a follow-up, because one of our audience members is wondering what alternatives women might have, uh, especially, I'm thinking, the the KIA that you described, who are those uh, women and girls carrying these heavy bales of secondhand clothing or other products on their heads. Um, could you just preview maybe the Orr Foundation's research on the health impacts of this work and helping these women find other economic opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially what we found is that after two months of head carrying, there's irreversible damage to their spinal column. And within six months, you have bones that are growing so much that sometimes they push into their trachea and they can't breathe um, well or swallow well, which can become another cause of death. Uh, so it's, um, yeah. After two years, basically, we have what we call emergency cases. So every Friday, we go to the chiropractor with five girls. We sit in a room, we look at their x-rays together, and every week we have two to three emergency cases, which means that if at any moment they turned their neck the wrong way while they were carrying a veil, they're at risk of um, dying. And so the, the call for action is urgent. And the reason that we're doing this study is, of course, because it allows us to inform policy. So we'll be issuing a, issuing a formal report probably around September, for secondhand September, that will have uh, recommendations both locally and for international actors. And then in terms of the apprenticeship programs that we have, uh, you know, it's very common to tell women that the two things they could do are sew or become a hairstylist. Um, but, you know, nothing against sewing. Sewing is an incredible technology, but in a world of fast fashion, uh, <laughs> making more clothes doesn't have so much value and isn't so economically viable. So we are, we have apprentices in our um, lab, so they're learning engineering, they're learning how to build the shredder, they're learning how to build these materials. But then we also have apprentices out in the world with other entrepreneurs, um, learning skills like carpentry, um, cell phone repair, <laughs> really very much trying intentionally to broaden um, the roles that women can play in society. And our goal, not so secretly, is to build what we call a Mabilgu agency. Mabilgu means sisterhood in Dagbani, the dominant language of these women and to build a sisterhood agency of these, for these women to be able to, um, yeah, provide services to Accra and to other cities in Ghana. Thanks, Liz. I have one more question for you, Camille, that I think bridges one of mine and one of our audience members uh, that I'll ask for you to keep brief because then we'll conclude with our final thoughts question for both of you. Um, so the audience member is sort of wondering about the antiquated processes being used by the fashion industry that lead to large volumes of commercial waste that you alluded to before. And so that made me think of a question that I had, which is the fact that Fab Scrap really works at the intersection of the fashion industry, which is dominated uh, by women, and waste management. management. 
which is dominated by men. Um, how can bridging these industries improve social and environmental sustainability and maybe address some of those antiquated processes? That's a big question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, well, I would say, I mean, I think where there's been most success in sustainability is kind of um, combining um, different industries. I think that's been the most important. So, for example, if you look at the partnership that I have um, with with the other co-founder, Jessica, like her entire knowledge and background um, is not in fashion. Like she comes from waste management with New York Sanitation, um, and then with my background in fashion and design, um, that has been very complementary um, in basically with our backgrounds, that means uh, maximum diversion from landfill. So I think um, I think the the collaboration between different industries is most important because you really get a different perspective altogether, rather than one um, one group all coming from one side trying to figure out a solution. And that's kind of going back to what I was saying with the antiquated parts of the industry. There are some processes in design and in production that are so ingrained and so automatic that um, if you try to get all people from fashion, the fashion industry to try to think outside that box, it becomes really hard because it's almost inherent to, um, to them as designers and them and what they do. Um, and so I think, again, that collaboration of um, across industries is super important for that way or for that reason. Um, and yes, I think there are a lot of things and that's really the challenge with um, sustainability and fashion is just looking at every single part of that process and um, most of them are linear um, and trying to figure out okay does it really have to be this way and why is it this way and so i think it's the questioning and um, the analyzing that we need to do a little bit more of thank you now my final question is for both of you it's sort of our wrap-up 30-second takeaway message um, what is one piece of advice you'd give to companies or consumers around the world seeking to make a difference in improving the sustainability of fashion? So last thoughts, Camille, I will start with you. This actually is a perfect continuation of kind of some of the things I was saying, um, where I think just really analyzing every part of um, the process for brands, I think is extremely helpful um, to really understand like how well um, you can try to make better steps and more sustainable steps. Um, I think the one the one challenge is, you know, trying to have things go into effect when, again, I know there are many deadlines happening, and I know it's hard to kind of interrupt or disrupt like that process. That process, but um, I think when when people kind of think of sustainability and changes holistically it becomes very intimidating and then people kind of just don't end up doing anything so i think um, the biggest advice i could give is to not be intimidated and paralyzed in that way and just to try something um, like analyze one part that you know is actually doable to change and to improve um, and start there and then once that is able to kind of um, you know, grow some legs and take off then um, and, and attacking a different part. Um, but I think just avoiding that paralysis and just um, taking taking a leap on one particular part. And Liz, I will leave you with the final word. Thank you. So to build on the sort of advice I already gave to consumers, if you're donating clothes, don't donate the old just to buy the new. 
if you put into a system, take out of that system <laughs> and try to shop from the same places that you're donating to and see how that feels and what that system really looks like. Volunteer there if you can. And then my advice for fast fashion brands is very simple. <laughs> we need to make less and we need to pay garment workers a living wage. Paying garment workers a living wage is far more important than any recycling technology in achieving a circular economy. This podcast is derived from audio recordings of SGOE's Innovation Station virtual event series. The views expressed in the preceding episode are those of the featured innovators and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, the U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. government. For more information on the Secretary's Office of Global Women's Issues, its initiatives, and programs, please visit the State Department website at www.state.gov.